She's a decorated U.S. Navy veteran, visually impaired, and was working at the Veterans Administration Hospital in Phoenix, Arizona. She noticed things were not as they should be. She made complaints, brought it to the attention of higher-ups, became known as a whistleblower. Welcome to the Law Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name's John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired police sergeant. For the latest news articles and much more, check out our website, letradioshow.com. In the Law Enforcement Today show, we'll be joined by special guests. We'll be talking about their experiences and issues affecting law enforcement officers, first responders, their families, their community, and victims of horrendous crimes. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Our page is Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Check out the daily articles on our website, letradioshow.com. And while you're there, download our free app. Who can first responders turn to when they need help? Shatterproof at FHE. Providing world-class, exclusive treatment services for first responders suffering from exposure to trauma, PTSD, anxiety, depression, and or substance abuse. For free 24-7 information, call 833-776-1420. That's 833-776-1420. Online at FHEHealth.com. Under programs, you'll find details about Shatterproof. Contact us from Phoenix, Arizona area. We have Paula Padine on the phone. Paula is a United States Navy veteran. She's also author of the book, A Sacred Duty. She worked for the Phoenix VA, and, well, things were not as they were supposed to be. I think a lot of people have heard about that, but we will go into details in a bit. Paula, thanks for being guest on the Law Enforcement Show. Very much appreciated. Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And it's also, uh, I want to thank you for your service in Navy. I was uh, in a career Navy family. My dad was career Navy. I was a Navy brat. Never served myself, but the Navy's always near and dear to my heart. Well, and you had to move around yeah. a lot, too, I bet. Yeah, I was born Which in was uh, hard. I was born in Passaic, New Jersey, went to Toms River, then rode to Spain, and then most of my childhood, Norfolk, Virginia area, uh, until retired, moved to Maryland. Wow. So you stayed by the water, at yeah, least. <laughs> yeah, I've always been by the water. And, uh, it's you know, before we get into your story, my grandfather, who immigrated from Ireland, served in the Navy. My my dad, my uncles, uh, I have a nephew in the Navy. I have other relatives that were in the service in World War II, Vietnam. The service members, they hold a special place in my heart, and they always will. So when you left the service, by the way, you served what years? So I was in the Navy from 1978 to 1986. I got out and Desert Storm hit, so I re-enlisted during Desert Storms, and I went in the reserves at that time. So you've seen a lot of changes in the Navy. I did. I think it was the 1970s era when they went to what we call Zumwalt's Navy, I think it was, when beards and everything else came into play. Yes, and I actually got to meet Admiral Zumwalt. Um, I was, my, as my husband says, in the resort Navy because I was a broadcast journalist. So I had these wonderful assignments that I got to do. I was, um, the first one wasn't as wonderful. I was stationed on Midway Island at the Armed Forces Radio and Television Service 
there. But after that, I got picked up and, and went to the Far East Network in Tokyo, Japan. And then I got selected as a, the first female co-anchor for a, a nationwide TV show called Navy News This Week. And it was during that time that I got to meet Admiral Zumwalt. And when I, I joined Jay in 1978, they had just opened several ratings for women to get into some of the... Um, you know, combatant roles. So it was like the first time women were able to go on board ships, although I never got to serve on one. I did numerous stories about our women serving, though, on on those ships. And um, it was just kind of an interesting time. We really had to forge ahead. Yeah, there were a lot of changes when, during that time. And I worked all in the shipyards in Portsmouth and Norfolk, as a teenager, as summer jobs, and right around that time, in late 70s, women were starting to transition into uh, shipboard service, and before that, that was unheard of. It was. It really was. So it was kind of neat <clears throat> to be on that cutting edge. It really was. And and I found in my time, because of the era that I was in, I was often the first to to have to do something. So um, it, it made me strong, and, and it didn't bother me, and, and a lot of the reason it didn't bother me was because I was raised, we had six kids in my family, and I was the oldest girl, so and I had, there was the four oldest were like three boys and me, the one girl. So if I didn't play with the boys, football, softball, <laughs> kickball, I, I didn't get to play. So it didn't, you know, it was easy for me to work with the men because I had grown up alongside um, men that are still my friends today. My brothers I, are, are good friends to this day. So I think it makes a, a difference that way. Again, thank you for your service. And you know, I can relate in so many different levels. Although I never served, you know, I grew up in a family of five. It was myself. I was the only boy. I had four younger sisters. And I always say this. If you don't like how I am as a man, blame my mother. Blame my sisters. My dad was in the Navy. He was gone all the time. And trust me, there's no one tougher in the world than a Navy mom. I'm telling you right now. Right. Because they have to pick up the slack. Oh yeah. You know, even though even though we serve um, the families, it has a big impact on families, and I think it's important to recognize a family too. That that's critically important. It is very important, and, and I don't want to belabor this point, but we we went through a time where. You know, dad, he would be on an aircraft carrier and he'd be on a med cruise and he'd be gone for six, seven, eight months. And we wouldn't know until a couple of days before the the this is before the advent of Skype and FaceTime and all that. You didn't have yeah, you didn't have <laughs> right. constant communications. And we would remember we were, I remember getting a phone call. Mom would say, dad's coming home tomorrow or day after tomorrow or next week. And I say, all right. But I want to go back. When I get in trouble, do mischievous things, which I did a lot of as a kid, there was <laughs> right. none of this, wait till your dad gets home, because he was gone for six, seven, eight months. It, she took care of business right there, right then. Right, right, because... You know, they can't wait six, seven, eight months. I mean, what what good is that going to do? So I I do think the Navy, it forces you to look at what is right in front of you and and 
kind of respond to it because you're on the move, so you realize that the time you have right there is limited. And I think, to me, that was one of the important things that the Navy instilled in me. I appreciate many moments because I know that you, you they just change. They change so rapidly. When I was in, we had 18 months um at military bases, and um, my my first duty station was one year because Midway was considered an overseas uh, tour, and it was remote, and there was no families. So it was all the men and women that were serving there that, you know, were there on the time, and it was like a four-mile island, and we only inhabited two miles of it. But they needed the news, too, because, as you said, it was before the Internet. The only thing we had was shortwave radio, right. and 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 we were able to get all the um, news feeds to, to give people the news. So I think people are really blessed now with the communications that we have, and it's important that we use it correctly and ethically, and um, I think that that's critically important. Yeah, I, I think it's fair to say that there's a whole lot of, well, the 24-hour news cable networks, there's a whole lot of the ethics that have gone by the wayside. When I was a kid, we had three channels on television. That was it. And he had a couple other ones on UHF. And, and one of the kids had to adjust the rabbit ears to make him come in. And you paid attention to the news because that was all you had. You had. And it was de- delivered differently. And, you know, maybe I think that we are more aware that, which is a good thing, of all the bad things that happen across the world. But on the negative side, we're also more aware of all the bad things that happen across the world, and there's no escaping it. We're talking with Paula Padin, decorated United States Navy veteran, also worked at the Veterans Administration Hospital in Phoenix, Arizona. We'll talk about that in a few moments. Don't go anywhere. We will be right back. What makes Shatterproof a very unique program is it's one of the only programs in the country that first responders can go to that is 100% all first responders. Everybody's in pretty bad shape when they get here. And then 30 days later, when you can see the transformation and the difference in people when they've had 30 days uh, of counseling, working with therapists, working with a psychiatrist, getting the neuro treatment. The transformation that happens with the clients is really humbling to be able to work around and see because people are getting better here. And it just shows that there's a need for the first responder community to deal with behavioral health issues and take them seriously and offer treatment to people that may need help out there. For free 24-7 information, call 833-776-1420 or online at fhehealth.com. Return conversation with Paula Padin on the Law Enforcement Today Show. Paula is a United States Navy veteran. Uh, she's visually impaired. She worked at a VA hospital in Phoenix, Arizona, became a whistleblower. We'll talk about that in a moment. And also author of the award-winning book, A Sacred Duty. Her website is Paula Padine. That's P-E-D-E-N-E.com. Paula, we talked about your career in the Navy, and I could tell you stories of, there's a tremendous transition that the, the Navy in particular went through at the end of the Vietnam War into the early 
the late 70s, early 80s. And you started your career right around that time, late 70s into the early 80s. So you've seen lots and lots of changes. Uh, one of the things that was always instilled in us as, as kids growing up around the military, in particular Norfolk, Virginia, I remember going to school with kids whose dads were POWs or MIA in Vietnam, and they didn't know for years. And some came home and some didn't. Some were killed and they didn't find out till later on. We had, and I still have, a tremendous amount of respect for those men and women uh, because, A, number one, they were treated so horribly when they came home, which you get to my point. Number two, as a rookie cop, I was trained by a lot of Vietnam combat veterans and police work, and they were phenomenal at what they did. And we even had some Korean War veterans that were commanders, you know, high ranking officers. So the respect thing, one of the things that was always drilled in our heads is they will be taken care of. They will be taken care of with VA benefits, the the, the hospitals, GI loans, whatever it was. And I'm sure you are the same mindset. Well, you know what? When I was in, Jay, they weren't, they had kind of stopped promising all those things because they were having problems providing them. You know, way, way back then, um, the VA wasn't as robust as it is today. They still had a hospital-based system. We wouldn't go to an outpatient-based system until the early 90s. So it was kind of um, more of a challenge from a healthcare point of view. But I, I think the most important thing, I got out of the Navy in 1986 and then I got into broadcasting. And I worked in broadcasting in uh, Washington, D.C., I got to cover some really phenomenal stories. And then after that, my husband, who I married, was shuffled off to Buffalo because he was a a Navy commander. And we spent uh, two years in Buffalo. And it was there that I got my job at the VA. And serving our nation's veterans was so compelling to me. Those people that you just talked about, those prisoners of war, the Vietnam veterans, the Korean War veterans... World War II, they, they were all there, and that's who we were primarily serving, again, on an inpatient level. Um, so when we changed, when we, I left Buffalo, went to Denver, and then got to Phoenix in 1994, and that's the advent of, of what became our primary care model, um, where we were actually able to put the, the veterans under the umbrella of one primary care physician. And that really, and a team. So we established teams. So in that primary care team, they had the doctor, the nurse, the social worker, the pharmacist, the nutritionist, and other ancillary support staff. And when VA went to that model, it truly was an improvement. It really was. After... um, we opened those primary care models. Then we started opening outpatient clinics. So that's when VA was truly able to expand. So at the time, we went from having 156 hospitals across the country, probably closer to 160, and and we added, within a few short years, 1,100 points of care through these outpatient clinics. And um, to me, the veterans are, are 
our job one. That's that's why I went to work for VA. I knew I was proud of my time in the military, but I was also proud to serve our nation's veterans. And as a public affairs officer, I was able to make a, a great impact. When I got to Phoenix, we did um, some public opinion research because that's what we do in public affairs. And we noticed that we didn't have a good reputation, but we didn't have a bad reputation either. It was just kind of we were quiet and people didn't know about us. So our whole job became setting out to you know, get us into the community. And and we created events in the community. We held our first uh, Veterans Day parade. We had, I I was very strong on uh, creating news releases and telling stories. I would have uh, a news release almost every week um, to tell a story about our nation's veterans. We had a, a pride campaign that would reinstill the good culture of the employees at the facility. We had congressional meetings. We had meetings with our veteran service organizations. We had quarterly town halls with the employees. And and I had a weekly email newsletter that was like, by the time um, I finished uh, measuring that newsletter over, you know, like two decades, had a, a 90% penetration rate of, of readers. And we really had an award-winning program in Phoenix. And then like many organizations, leadership changes and the, the wonderful ethical Vietnam veteran that we had who was our leader retired. And after that, it became a calamity of errors. Um, it was really kind of sad to see. We had people who put themselves in front of our veterans, which did not sit well with the staff. Now, mind you, we had 20 years of, of building a legacy under a director who would tell us, look, if it ever came between the bureaucracy or the veteran, I want you to err on the side of the veteran. Right. That's what he would say. And, you know, having that kind of leader is is so wonderful. And I, I didn't, although I really appreciated him, I couldn't understand why other people weren't having as much success as the Phoenix VA was. But when he left, that's when I saw why. Because it in any organization, this is not just VA alone. Who's leading you is critically important. And how they lead is 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 vital to our success. And if you have leaders who are ethical and know the mission, and VA, it's easy, serving our nation's veterans. That's really what it's about. The mission is not a complex it, it, one. It's very straightforward. It There's an old saying. Uh, the, the, when a fish rots, it rots from the head down. And I'm paraphrasing. And that's what right. is going through my mind when you talk about the leadership that yeah. was running the VA hospital you worked at in Phoenix. And when we return to our conversation with Paul Padine, we will talk more about the problems that started popping up, what she did about it, and how people retaliated against her for becoming a whistleblower. This is Law Enforcement Today's show. Talking to Paula Padine. Her book is called A Sacred Duty. Website's paulapadine.com. Don't go anywhere. We will be right back. Of all the radio stations in the United States, there's only one show like ours. The Law Enforcement Today radio show. And on Facebook, there's only one official page. 
do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. That's Law Enforcement Today Radio Show on Facebook. When you get there, click like and follow. Missed an episode of Law Enforcement Today? You don't have to anymore because now you can listen to it on Podopolo, the free new app that makes listening anytime, anywhere so easy. Catch up on shows you've missed and chat with John J. Wiley right there too. Download for free on the Apple or Google Play stores. That's Podopolo. And John J. Wiley wants to hear from you inside Podopolo. Back to our conversation with Paula Padine on the Law Enforcement Today Show. Paula is United States Navy veteran, highly decorated. Uh, she worked at the Veterans Administration Hospital in Phoenix, Arizona. She's also author of the book, A Sacred Duty. Her website is paulapadine.com. It's spelled P-E-D-E-N-E.com. For winter break, Paula, you talked about being in Buffalo, which, by the way, I love. My daughters live in South Buffalo. My my first wife is there. I love, I love it there. Late spring, summer, and early fall. The rest of the year, forget about it. (laughs) Phenomenal people. snow is bad. (laughs) Phenomenal people. Man, the weather, oh, I just don't know how they do it. So (laughs) you've been in the media for quite a while, and when you went to Phoenix, uh, you were in a, a public relations role. I know that's not the right term they use. You're basically media based. You you had your thumb on the pulse of what's going on, right. trying to improve the reputation of the service they offer. And they had a great reputation there at that time. They did. We did. And, you know, we had worked hard to build it. I, th- those things that I talked to you about, the news releases, the congressional relations, the veteran service organizations, the, the employee town halls, the employee newsletter, we even had a patient newsletter, those come over time. So it's constantly increasing the communications over time to build what we call winning relationships. And that's really what public relations is all about. But then when you have unethical leaders come in. It's like things go south fast. And you know what, Jay? To me, that was the hardest part is how fast it went bad. It just, it, you know, we had so many wonderful things. And then all of a sudden, after 18 years of all this great stuff, we, we got crummy leaders in there. One who put himself in front of our veterans and was actually trying to delay care so he could get a new MRI because he thought that was the best way to do it. And, and it was at that time that Dr. Sam Foote, and and I have to tell you a little bit about Sam. Sam was one of the clinic directors at the Thunderbird Clinic at the Phoenix VA Healthcare System, and he was just a phenomenal physician. His patients loved him. He was very learned. Um, The clinical executive board appointed him a member at large several times over because he carried the voice of, of the physicians within the hospital and would speak up. He wasn't afraid to speak up when he saw things that needed to change. And he was speaking up about the delays in care on the radiology 
And some of the other things that were happening uh, under this director, he was kind of had a bullying environment. It just wasn't very good to people. And, um, you know, we kind of worked together. He asked me to help him uh, get rid of this guy because he knew that I knew from being in the front office, like you said, I did have the pulse on the organization that I would know things and I, I could help him get the evidence he needed. So we, we took that evidence. We went to the network director. Um, she she gathered it. She asked us to send it to the Office of the Inspector General because it was illegal. A lot of what he was doing was illegal and unethical. Um, they came in, investigated, verified what we had said, and, and he was forced to retire. So we thought, oh, good. Glad he's gone. Let's get back to getting, you know, our veterans into the VA healthcare system with pride and serving them wonderfully, et cetera. Well, little did we know that the storm was brewing because after he left, we had an interim director that was good, but then we got the director, and that was Sharon Hellman became appointed as our director at the Phoenix VA. And I was kind of excited because here, 60 years of, of that VA being here, first female director. Now, me, you know, being in the Navy, having to cut um, those ropes and and really push forward as a woman during that time, I was ready to help her push forward as a woman. And I got, you know, as our first female director, I got her media coverage. I introduced her to some key people in the community, the mayor, the director of the county hospital, um, several uh, medical leader supporters, uh, several congressional members, um, you know, the veteran service organizations, those kinds of things, and really had her in a good status on her way to becoming, um, a, you know, a credible director. But little did I know and little did Sam know that they had kind of a target on our backs because we had removed the former director. Now, mind you, we weren't looking to remove him, and we weren't looking to remove these guys. All we wanted was everybody to do the most right thing, which was take care of our nation's veterans. And unfortunately for us, they didn't. They started. That's called doing your job. Exactly. I mean, you weren't going for crazy stuff. Or you you, you want people to do your job. (laughs) Take care of veterans. Right. And and provide them quality level of care. And, you know, some of the things that Sharon did when she first came in, she started cutting some of the access standards, not the access standards, but the access avenues that we had. Like we were holding Saturday clinics because being in the Southwest, the veterans are migrating here. They, they're just, they were at the time coming in droves. And it meant that in order to get them into the system and get them vested, when we held the Saturday clinics, we could get them in sooner. So one of the first things she does after getting there is cuts the Saturday clinics, which didn't make sense to any of us. And then um, she hired this Franklin Covey um, team, and they came in, and, and they created what was called this wildly important goal, or the WIG, as, as it was known. And the WIG was all about 
taking all your effort. So the 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 philosophy of of Covey is very good. It's great in actuality. And what they were trying to do was great. And and through the wig, what they wanted to do was focus all our attention on making sure that access to our nation's veterans and their health care became job one. And and that was fine by all of us, but we never knew that they would do it unethically. And we never knew that they would do it so that they could get performance money. That yeah. was their driving factor. Here's, here's two and, points that, that come to mind. Number one, the acronyms that, that so many federal agencies love to use. Right. For some reason, the older I get, the more suspicious I become when there's an acronym involved. Secondly, smart. <laughs> when things start going into statistics and stat-driven reporting, I get very, very, very suspicious. And there's an old saying. I believe it's Mark Twain. He said, there's lies, there's damn lies, then there's statistics. Right. And, and quite often, when you add in performance reviews based on statistics and monetary gain based on statistics, right. then really red flags come up. Yeah. And and you're right. That's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. So they start manipulating the data. They make it look like they're getting the patients in within 30 days and 14 days, and they're not. And and But they're saying that in everything they're sharing, that's what they're saying. And in the meantime, um, by this point in time, Sharon had kind of had it in for me, Sharon and Lance, her number two, Lance Robinson, and they were looking for ways to remove me. And, you know, first of all, Jay, I'm sitting there and I'm doing the best job I can. And and over the course of, of four years, they had cut my staff, they had cut my funding, that they had removed contractual support that I had. So I went from having a 60-hour a work week, which I didn't mind giving, you know, to VA, to an 80-hour a work week. That's and, a big and that change. became yeah. very difficult. It's, it's difficult to have a, a, a personal life afterwards for you and your family. And secondly, it's Correct. difficult to maintain your standards of performance. This is the Law Enforcement Today Show. We'll turn our conversation with Paula Padin in just a few moments. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Flintstone Media has been the digital messaging bedrock of several brands and businesses, serving as a highly resourceful podcast production house and consultancy firm for over six years. Work with a leader in the industry and add a new podcast to your brand's content offerings. From show development and setup through recording and distribution, Jemmy will lend her experience launching dozens of podcasts and producing over a thousand episodes, making creating your show a simple and easy turnkey process for you. Visit FlintstoneMedia.com for podcast samples. That's FlintstoneMedia.com. Ever miss an episode of the Law Enforcement Today radio show? Never fear. You can sign up for our free email newsletter and get access to past podcast episodes. Plus, all subscribers are automatically entered in all future contests. Sign up at letradioshow.com. Scroll down to the sign up area. That's letradioshow.com. We promise we will never spam you. Sign up at letradioshow.com. 
Turn our conversation on the law enforcement today's show with Paula Padin. We're going in a slightly different direction here. And, and here's a reason why. Paula is a United States Navy veteran. She worked for the Phoenix VA, the Veterans Administration Hospital Network, for a long time. She became a whistleblower. When things were not right for our veterans, she took action, and she'll talk more about that, and faced tremendous retaliation. She wrote a book called A Sacred Duty, and you go to her website, paulapadine.com. That's P-E-D-E-N-E.com. Our veterans, to me, uh, I said earlier, uh, hold a special place in my heart, number one. Number two, so many of our law enforcement, our first responders, our firefighters, EMTs, our military veterans if they stop serving when they when they're done with their military service we would be in dire straits we owe these people a tremendous debt of gratitude not just for their service in the military but their service afterwards so i want to go back to your conversation you're phoenix you have new administrators come in things are being changed radically the way they're doing things and the big red flag for you was that they were reporting oh, a, that right. about serving the the, the the patients, their veterans. Correct. How long was Correct. the wait under this time period? So at the time um, that she started doing the Wildly Important Goal initiative, we had about a 60 to 90 day wait, which was too long because their standards were now 30 and 14 days. So they were manipulating the data. And the other thing that they were doing, which was totally illegal, was they would put some of the patients, if they knew they could get them into a certain area or clinic within the 14 to 30 days, they'd enter them into the computer system. If they saw that they couldn't get them in within the 14 to 30 day window, you know what they would do, Jay? They would take and and they wouldn't hit the submit button, so it entered into the computer system. They would hit the print button and they would print that patient's name and information and the request for an appointment. And it would go into what is called an off-the-books list. And then they had one person making those phone calls to get all those patients in. Now, by this time, I'm um, Sharon had her sights on me, so has Lance. They illegally and unethically removed me from my longstanding public affairs officer job for a minor infraction that should have had a letter of counseling or a letter of reprimand at the most. I had logged my husband on to a VA computer that he was using to put pictures into a PowerPoint for a public presentation. He had no access to any other VA information, and he was a registered volunteer that was assigned to public affairs to help me. So there's nothing remember, nefarious about that. There's nothing <clears throat> right. Like he, nothing. He was snooping nothing. around and no. doing no. No. Okay. No. No. Now, should he have had his own login? Yes, and that's what I admitted to. I admitted to the fact that I used my login to log him in. But why? Because I trusted him. Navy commander, my husband, top secret clearance in the military. I knew he wasn't going to do anything nefarious, but still a policy violation, which I admitted to, and, and I was ready to take the accountability for that. But I wasn't ready to take the 
a legal and unethical accountability that they gave me, which was remove me from my job, take away my email, take away my phone, banish me to the basement library where I'm checking in books, checking out books, sharpening pencils, faxing documents, logging the the patients that are indigent onto the computer and, um, you know, giving them access to a telephone because a lot of them don't have the money that they need to do to do those basic basic needs. So I go from being the pulse of the organization to this little clerk in the library, and I have to fight. I have to fight um, my case. I file an EEO case um, for uh, inappropriate removal. I have to to hire a criminal attorney because, you know, that log on onto the computer, they they said that that was a National Security Operations Center breach and that they the NSOC needed to treat it as a high-level breach, and they were trying to remove me for that. It was criminal charges. That didn't work for them. So then they started going back through my fund control point for 12 years. Now, mind you, All of those fund controls are monitored by contracting officers, by fiscal officers, and they're signed off on by other sources within the system so that nobody has the ability to really cheat the system or, you know, do something uh, unethical with money. And and it was like, they, they start looking through my fine, my fine control and they're like, you bought awards for the patients for the Creative Arts Festival. You bought colored paper to um, notify the, the staff and the patients that the parade was coming and the streets around the hospital were closing. I mean, silly things like that. It was like absolutely insane. But I had to go through through criminal, the office of the inspector general investigated me. You know, it was just insane. It was really insane. How long did you have to go through this defense process? Two years. And I, I hate to ask years. this. Uh, how much did it cost you and your husband financially oh to do this? Yeah, well, financially, you know, by the time I got done with the the lawyers, it was about eighty thousand dollars. And I don't thing. know about you, but as a federal employee, you don't, you know, other than my thrift savings plan, which I couldn't access at the time, I didn't have just eighty thousand no. dollars sitting around. My wife and I don't know? have eighty grand sitting around right now. Are you kidding me? <laughs> don't even get me started on that, Paula. <laughs> You know, that's not my my purpose. My purpose is to serve, just like those firemen and police officers that you talked about that and our veterans. We have a higher calling, and it's to give to our country. We're giving back to our country. So, you know, that, that was kind of my motivation. But so they tell me they're going to remove me from my job for 30 days, and it ends up being two years. But you know what, Jay? During that two years, I knew that God had me where he needed me to be. Because had I not been banished to the basement library, I wouldn't have heard the the daily stories from Pauline, who we were in the the van pool with every day, because I'm legally blind. I can't drive. I had a van pool. She'd pick me up first. She'd drop me off last, because I was closest to her home. And we'd talk about what was happening with that paper list. That paper list grew and grew and grew. And, and you know, <clears throat> I'm reporting it, but I'm reporting it anonymously. I'm, I'm, you know, sending information off to the OIG, to the Office of the Medical Inspector, to the Joint Commission. I even sent some materials to an investigative reporter, Dennis Wagner, 
who was instrumental in breaking the VA wait time scandal story wide open. And I'm doing as much as I can as Miss Anonymous. And all the while, I'm going, Sam, Sam, I need your help. Because remember, Dr. Foote, respected doctor, they're picking on him too. Because we had gotten rid of the former administrator. So finally, he sends three letters to the OIG. They come out. They investigate. He He signs every single one. And by the third investigation, which was the middle of November, he said, Paula, I can tell that I'm going to need to retire and blow this whole thing wide open. They're not doing anything with the information that you or I are sending them. There's so much more we could talk about this. Right. That that it's, and I'll be honest with you, Paula, it, it makes me really angry that, yeah. that they're not served, they're not taken care of. We've heard horror stories and the way you're treated also is equally horrifying. But did this inspire your book, A Sacred Duty, yes. and kind of your calling after? Yes. So, and that's exactly what inspired the book. Because being a whistleblower is very hard, is very challenging, especially when they retaliate against you. You think you're doing the most right thing by having the courage to stand up and tell the truth. And you really are. But sometimes that comes with great repercussions. Yeah, this old saying is truth will set you free, but there's a, yeah. a price to be paid. A- a great cost for it. And in the book, I talk about the 30 days, the 60 days, the 90 days, the two years, and the enraging yet frightening and ultimately inspiring um, way that it all worked out. Because as as those of of your listeners who know, this did all work out. We were able to expose them. We were able to stop the VA wait time um, scandal from continuing. We saved thousands of um, veterans' lives that were trapped in the system. We thought it was just happening in Phoenix. When the OIG finally came in and investigated, it was happening at 111 of the 156 hospitals nationwide. And I want to thank you for, for doing that. Paula, we got to have you back on the show again. Before we leave, your website, what is it, and can people contact you there? Sure. And my website is www.paulapadine.com. My email is simple. It's paula at padine.com. You can also send me a message through the website. But I think, you know what, Jay, the most important thing about the book is it's an inspiring story of David versus Goliath. Here you have the, the little gal that's banished to the basement library that's paying for all her lawyers and everything, that's working anonymously with somebody else to to beat a nationwide system that has, you know, tons of employees and, and lawyers uh, fighting against us. And on the their book payroll. is called A Sacred a Duty. Sacred Paula, Duty. thanks it so works. much for being a guest on the show. Very much appreciated. Thank you, Jay. I'd like to thank our guests so much for coming on the Law Enforcement Today radio show. The Law Enforcement Today radio show is a nationally syndicated radio show broadcast on numerous stations once a week and growing if you enjoyed the podcast version of the show please do me a big favor tell a friend i'll be back in just a couple days with a brand new episode of the law enforcement today radio show and podcast until then this is john j wiley see ya